Well, so no one likes to be rebuked. Right? Um, even when the rebuke is done correctly, lovingly, empathetically, with a vision for your good in relationship. You know, Miss Allen has given me a few rebukes that I needed. They weren't comfortable, but she did them right. I needed them. Can you think of a time in your life when you were rebuked and rebuked in the right way and it had a real healthy, growing, sanctifying effect in your life? Can you think of one? Maybe more. You know, one of the most famous rebukes, at least for a Presbyterian, occurred in 1536. You know what's what I'm speaking about? You good Presbyterians. Um, it's a rebuke when Calvin, you remember, had just written the first editions of the Institutes of the Christian Religion during the time of the Reformation. You know, it was the first and the best systematic theology that said, you know, what are we about? And he wrote it when he was about 26, 27 years old. He wrote it to edify believers. And he wrote it as a defense to the king of France who was starting to persecute those who were sympathetic to the reformed understanding of the gospel. It was incredibly popular. People gobbled it up. It was this book about this big. It was called a pocket book, but about 300 pages. People put it in their pockets and carried it around with them. They were so hungry for it. So Calvin became famous. And so he was leaving France, heading to Basel, because he needed to flee persecution as well. And he was going to Basel, which was relatively safe. He wanted to spend his years in safety and solitude to write and study and put out good biblical resources for the church. But this war broke out, and it kept him from going in the direct route to Basel, and he had to go through Geneva. Well, in Geneva, he knew of a man named Farrell who had led the charge of Reformation in Geneva. He was this fiery evangelist and the right man for that job, but he didn't have the gifts and the temperament to really pastor and lead and build and develop vision into the future. So he visited with Pharaoh, but Pharaoh looked at him and he realized that providentially God had so arranged things that he brought the right man at the right time into Geneva to complement their team and to do the pastoral work, dig deep roots down and enable the gospel to extend its roots around the city and the region. And so he looked at Calvin and said, you've got to stay. God's brought you here at the right time. Stay. And he kept urging him, and Calvin kept saying, no, I'm not going to stay. I mean, I'm going to Basel. I'm going to study the rest of my life and write. And so finally, Basel, the, uh, Pharaoh gets, he just had enough. He sees it so clearly, and how God has gifted this man for this task. And so he got fed up with him and exclaimed, may God curse your solitude and the tranquility of your studies if you leave us and refuge yourself in your library and don't help us in our time of need. And Calvin was just stunned. And so he repented and consented, and he stayed in Geneva. And he became the chief leader of the Reformation. Incredible impact, as we know, around Europe and the world. I don't know if Pharaoh's rebuke was entirely the right way to do it. We call that feralizing someone today, but it had its good effect. And sometimes we need a good rebuke. So our passage today is all about Jesus' gracious rebuking. So last week we looked in Luke 4 
at Jesus's inaugural sermon, his programmatic sermon, just a tremendous grace-filled sermon out of Isaiah 61 and 58, where he uses that text to tell his hometown in Nazareth who he is and what he's come to do and how they're to respond to him. I mean, he, he says this in 4, 18 and 19, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, a day of acceptable to our God. Tremendous that that is why Jesus came. And the sermon introduces the rest of Luke Acts. It's like a summary statement of what we're going to see throughout our studies in Luke. And it's closely related to our passage today. So, you remember that Jesus gets run out of Nazareth. We're going to get back to that in just a moment. And now he's heading to Capernaum. And so, let's read Luke 4, verse 31. 431. And he went down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and he was teaching them on the Sabbath. And they were astonished at his teaching, for his word possessed authority. And in the synagogue there was a man who had the spirit of an unclean demon, and he cried out with a loud voice, Ha! What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And when the demon had thrown him down in their midst, he came out of him, having done him no harm. And they were all amazed and said to one another, What is this word? For with authority and power he commands the unclean spirits, and they come out of him. And reports about him went out into every place in the surrounding region. And he arose and left the synagogue and entered Simon's house. Now Simon's mother-in-law was ill with a high fever. They appealed to him on her behalf. And he stood over her and rebuked the fever. And it left her. And immediately she rose and began to serve them. Now when the sun was setting, all those who had any who were sick with various diseases brought them to him, and he laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. And demons also came out of many, crying, you are the Son of God. But he rebuked them, would not allow them to speak because they knew that he was the Christ. And when it was day, he departed and went into a desolate place, and the people sought him and came to him and would have kept him from leaving them. But he said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. And he was preaching in the synagogues of Judea. And the grass withers and the flowers fade, and this good gospel word endures forever. Let's pray this little prayer together as we meditate on this passage. Oh God, enable the preaching of your inspired word to arrive to us and work in us today in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction 
for you ask it in Jesus' name, amen. So Jesus travels, leaves Nazareth, travels some 30 miles uh, over to Capernaum. It's also in Galilee, and he goes down to Capernaum because Nazareth is in the mountains, and Capernaum is on the Sea of Galilee. And actually, it's like 680 feet below sea level. He goes really low down to that fishing village. Capernaum becomes his home base, the center of his Galilean ministry. So Matthew 9, 1 actually calls Galilee, uh, uh, Capernaum Jesus' own city becomes his adopted city. He's run out of his own hometown, and he finds a new hometown. So from Capernaum, he begins to put into practice what he said he was going to do in that inaugural sermon, bringing release. So what Luke emphasizes in this text, this passage, is Jesus's total and complete authority. Like nobody, nothing can stand in Jesus's way. And so first he highlights that in Jesus' teaching ministry. That's the first few verses, talks about how he's teaching in the synagogue. And people are just amazed by him. It says they're astonished at his teaching for he possessed authority. I mean, they're overwhelmed. Literally the word is they're struck out of themselves. Listening to this man teach. It's authoritative. He, He doesn't have to quote anybody as if somebody else could teach him what the text meant. He's the Word of God explaining the Word around himself. So then, after speaking of this powerful teaching ministry, Luke details two other events that occur on this Sabbath day when he's teaching in the synagogue to underline that authority he has. There's a demon possession, and there's a healing, and then multiple healings. So first... Jesus rebukes a demon, then Jesus rebukes a fever, then Jesus rebukes you. Jesus rebukes a demon. So in the synagogue on this Sabbath day, where Jesus is teaching, there's a man sitting there in the congregation. And he's evidently listened to a lot of what Jesus has said. Like he's listened to Jesus' sermon in the presence of the rest of the synagogue attenders. He's one of them. I mean, did he listen to Jesus preach Isaiah 61, that I've come to bring release to captives? Um, This man has a spirit that is an unclean demon. And that spirit is exercising authority over this man. So Jesus is exercising his his gracious authority, and this demon is exercising his evil authority right at the same time, right in the same congregation. And so I wonder, did, did the man look like everybody else? I've always thought that he was obvious, but the more you listen to the text, he's just a member of that congregation. He's just there. Did anyone know he was demon-possessed before he spoke? I mean, the man's in the right place, but he's answering to a different master. I mean, the more I think about that, that's kind of alarming. It's kind of an extreme example of where we could find ourselves, right? That we could be answering to a different master when we're in the congregation of the people of God under Jesus' gracious authority. 
We could look like everybody else, okay from the outside, but there's a different power that's having its way over us on the inside. But, but at some point, Jesus is too much for this man, which is always our prayer, that some point Jesus is going to be too much for us in our sin patterns. And the demon speaks, and he uses this man as his mouthpiece. And so the demon says, ha! And that's really a way to say, leave us alone, get out of our business. Quit meddling here. He says, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I I know who you are, the Holy One of God. And so the demon, like he's angry, but it's not primarily anger. He is terrified. So he comes face to face with reality in a way he never has had to do. This demon, this supra-powerful person that's invaded this man, he, he realizes more than he ever has that his end is final destruction and he fears it's about to be here right now. And not only for himself, but he says, have you come to destroy us? Meaning me and all of my, all the host of evil. Is it over? Is this the time for judgment to happen? I mean, just right here, just see, I mean, the devil is afraid, afraid of Jesus. You see, more than anyone present that day, the demon knows who Jesus is and what that means for him. He knows he's the Holy One of God, like nobody else knows. And that truth is utterly dismantling to him. So Jesus faces him, this terrified demon who's gripping this man, and he demonstrates his total authority by casting that demon out of this man. And and what we see here is just, just not hard for him. He doesn't have to do a whole lot of stuff. It's no contest. He, he, He looks at the man, looks at the demon, just rebukes the demon. He says, be silent and come out of him. And and Jesus' rebuke breaks the demon's authority. He brings a decisive end to his power over this man. And so we ask, why does Jesus tell the demon to be silent? I mean, the demon utters truth. Why does he stop him? You are the Holy One of God. I mean, that's about the clearest confession as you're going to find in the whole gospel. Why does he do that? Well, one, the Holy One of God is also a messianic title in Jewish way of thinking in this period of time. It was associated with political and military objectives. Jesus was distancing himself from that. But probably even more than that is, Jesus doesn't want anything from this demon. Even a true confession It's utter separation. You have nothing to do with me, and I want nothing from you. I mean, it kind of reminds you of Ephesians 5, 11. That's the verse that came to my mind. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness. Like nothing. Like no dabbling. Don't get anything out of that. You know, Jesus illustrates that for us. I want nothing from you, even if you're speaking truth. So at Jesus' rebuke, the devil, that this demon, throws the man down in their midst and comes out of him, but he does so without doing him any harm. 
Now the question is, did he want to do him harm? What do you think? I mean, it's a total and complete victory. So some think that when the demon says, have you come to destroy us? In addition to what I just said, he's also saying, he's also threatening Jesus, like holding the man hostage and saying, look, if you cast me out, I am gonna destroy this guy. I'm gonna wreck him. But we see here that he can't do it. He can't do it. Though he threatens Jesus himself, he's incapable of doing it. Jesus is in total authority. He's more than a conqueror here. But he tries to hurt the man. Like when he can't inhabit him, he throws him down. He does everything he can. It's a picture of the devil's hatred of you. If he, if, he, if he could, he'd murder you right now. He's a murderer from the beginning. And one way or the other, that's his desire for you. It's, it's, it's fearsome if we didn't have one who had total authority. It tells us that no sin has your best interest at heart. No matter how much it tries to convince you of that, it never does. It wants to throw you down. That's what sin wants. If I can't destroy him or her, I want to throw him or her down. So the demon's saying, look, if I'm going to be destroyed one day, I'm going to do everything I can to destroy this person now. Well, the point of Jesus's power encounter here is given it in the response. And the people say, what is this word? For with authority and power, he commands the unclean spirits and they come out. And so 1 John 3 says, Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil, like all of them, all the ramifications. And that's why this demon expulsion is the first miracle of the gospel. It's the first illustration of Jesus's programmatic sermon to release captives because he's going head to head with the devil. There's a power encounter. Who's the authority over this world? And Jesus is saying, I'm the one. And I'm going to make it very clear to everybody. The devil is coming after Jesus with everything he has. That's why there's so much demon possession in the Gospels. You don't read it in the, in the epistles, nor in the Old Testament. But you read it in the Gospels because when the Son of God comes, the devil raises his hosts and goes after him. So Jesus has just resisted the temptation of the devil in the wilderness. And so now the devil is going after him with one of his lieutenants, one of his soldiers, and Jesus rebukes him and expels him. Both ways, Jesus is in total authority. Total authority. Well, next, Jesus rebukes a fever. So after this, Jesus leaves the synagogue and goes with Simon to his house. And Simon was married, and his mother-in-law was staying with them. So initial application, Peter was very nice to his mother-in-law. And he cares about her. And so she was ill with a high fever. Matthew and Mark just say fever, but Luke says a high fever. And that supports Luke's authorship. Um, Dr. Luke is sympathetic to these details. Like he's seen regular fevers and high fevers, ones that were really debilitating. And this was a bad one. And so he notes that. So Simon and the rest there, probably his wife and others, appealed to Jesus on her behalf to heal her. Beautiful. 
And Jesus stands over her and rebukes the fever. And so it's really interesting that Jesus uses, or Luke uses, rebuke for a high fever, even as Jesus had also rebuked the demon. It's a great meditation. Why that terminology? I think you'd probably say a lot. I think you could say that Jesus is saying, behind all evil, every, every evil in our world is a personal cause. It's our sin, ultimately. And it's the person of the devil going after us, bringing the curse around the world. So rebuking it is marking the, the, the personal origin of evil in our world. It just didn't happen. But in addition to that, it could be that Jesus looks at the mother-in-law and her high fever, and she says, in this particular case, it's not always the case at all, but in this particular case, this is a demonic assault directed towards her. Directed towards her, like the demonic assault of Job gone after him, particularly to do him damage. And Jesus may be saying that they have gone after her directly. You know, the way it's described is the, de- the man has a demon and the mother-in-law has a fever. In both cases, it's a demonic assault upon them. So what's going to happen? Once again, we have a situation. Who's going to be more authoritative? Well, we see again that Jesus has no trouble dealing with this fever, no matter how grave it is. He rebukes the debilitating fever. It leaves her, and wonderfully, she immediately rises and starts serving them. Like, it's a complete cure. It's not that she had to wait a couple of days and get her strength back, that she was exhausted or sapped. Like, you know, after we had COVID, it took several days or weeks to get our strength back up, but she immediately has the desire and the ability, the drive to serve them immediately, full recovery. Just demonstrating Jesus's total authority over your body. He cares about your body. He came to redeem your body from the effects of the fall. And then when the sun sets, so ending this very full Sabbath day for Jesus, it's not over for him yet. So, they start coming. The Sabbath is over so they can start getting out of their houses again. And so they bring all the sick and diseased of their loved ones. They bring them to Jesus for healing. He has this crowd of weakened, sickly, discouraged people at the door. And Luke, Dr. Luke again shows his medical sensitivity because he says that Jesus looks at this whole crowd of sick people And he lays his hands on every one of them and heals them. Don't you think Luke has probably done that? That it's not just a crowd, it's individuals with the individual problem, their symptoms, their hurts, their desires, their needs. And we just see Luke describing Jesus as as a really good physician. Very attentive, very sympathetic, giving each one particular personal care. And he gives you particular personal care. You're not lost in a crowd of suffering, sinful people. He knows you by name and gives you particular care. And then just see the sharp contrast between the demon and Jesus. 
The demon throws this man down trying to do any damage he can. And Jesus takes these people and mercifully, patiently touches them and gives them dignity and value. Beautiful. And they also bring the demon-possessed to him, and he would cast them out, and they'd be confessing, you are the Son of God, and he rebuked them, and they were out. And once again, why does he silence the demons, even when they confess he's the Christ, and that's where he wants to lead his disciples, to confess that he's the Christ? Well, one, it's that confusion over the military association, and two, it's just once again, I want nothing from you. There's no compromise between light and dark. Now, both of these events lead us to wonder, are we supposed to rebuke the devil and rebuke sicknesses like Jesus, right? But it's crucial to see here, the whole point is to magnify and prove that Jesus is the Redeemer, that he's the Holy One of God, the Son of God, the Christ. It's all about magnifying him. There are things Jesus do that we can't do, and that's why he came. That's what the cross is all about. It's better to put ourselves in the disciples' role versus the Jesus role here. And so maybe the Bible's view of this on the whole for us would be maybe the letter of James, James 5. How do we deal with sickness and demonically induced suffering and affliction? Well, James would say, if anyone is suffering, let him pray. If he's sick, let him call the elders to pray over him. You know, we have an illustration of that in our passage. We have the people appealing to Jesus on her behalf. That's a prayer that they did for their mother-in-law. Fervent prayer, believing that he has total authority over all our problems. That he exerts his power miraculously today. Second in James is exploring medical treatments. Maybe that oil was a medical treatment And then third, if anyone's committed sins, let him confess them. This is probing pastoral care to deal with your heart too. That's how we deal with sickness and demonically induced afflictions. And we have the total authority of Jesus behind us working his good and perfect will. Well, how about Jesus' rebuke of us? Do you see that in the text? See, it's not overt, it's not explicit, but it's clearly implied. So after this incredible day asserting his authority through these mighty works, Jesus wakes up very early in the morning before everyone else gets up. And he goes off to a solitary place. He goes off to be by himself. He was spent, spent the day before. What does he need? He needs time alone. He's craving fellowship and communion with his father. And he gets up and he goes. He needs to be away from people to to speak with his father. And so after all that activity, that's what he's, he's craving. It's, it's a great model for us to get replenished and refurbished. So after all the people clamoring for his healing power, he also needs further guidance and further direction. You know, they're trying to get him to stay. He knows that. Like, what, how do I spend my time? How do I invest my life? How do I go about? What, what are my priorities in my mission? And so he goes to the Father for that. The heartbeat of my mission is Luke 4, 18 and 19. How do I do that? How do I preach good news to the poor and recovery of sight to the blind, releasing captives? So everyone wakes up and they go and search for him. That's a really strong word. Like they're hunting him down because they want him to stay. 
They want him to stay to be their own miracle-working prophet in their region. But Jesus looks at them. He looks at him, having, having refocused his mind and heart in fellowship with his father. He looks at them, this crowd that wants him to stay, so different from Nazareth, that what it should have been, must have been, very attractive. He says, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. A reconfirmation of his priorities. That's the core of my ministry. That's the emphasis of chapter 4. The demon expulsion and the healings are signposts to this. That's why the crowd says, what is this word? It was a visible word of who Jesus was and the ultimate redemption and release that he brings You see, he just didn't come to give temporary liberty from the devil's power or temporary liberty from diseases' ravages. As important as these are to him, they aren't the topmost priority. He came to expel the devil at the cross. I mean, that's the expulsion, the great rebuke to deal with him in a decisive, mortal manner by taking our curse upon himself and suffering for it on our behalf. That's why he came. He came, having satisfied our sentence, to resurrect from the dead, to open the gates of the grave for us, to resurrect in a glorified body, his body, but new and different, and thereby overcoming all sin's effects, all diseases' effects, and granting us glorified souls and bodies is tremendously more important than those great miraculous works. That's the real good news to the poor, releasing captives, restoring sight to the blind. As amazing as this good news of the kingdom is, which is what we need, it's also a rebuke to you, isn't it? The good news is also a gracious rebuke. See, the good news means you can't do it. No matter how much you want to, you can't. That Jesus, with his unfathomable authority is the one who has to do it for you. You you can't climb the mountain or clean yourself up. By, By nature, you're enslaved to the devil. You're dead in trespasses and sins. The gospel is a rebuke to you. Your self sufficiency, your sense of goodness, your pride, whatever it is, it's a rebuke. You need Jesus spiritually even more than the demon possessed man needed him, even more than the diseased mother-in-law needed him. You are the blind, the captive, the poor, and the oppressed, spiritually speaking, in a way we can't even fathom. This takes us back to Nazareth, where Jesus was rejected, because it's all a unit. And he preaches that beautiful sermon, but they're skeptical about who he is and what he's going to do. So he tells the stories of Elisha and Elijah. And essentially with those two stories, he's saying, look, God's grace always wanted to trans pass through the borders of Israel and go to the Gentiles because you're no better than them, though you may think you are, and you need grace too. Realize that. And yet they could not take it in. They couldn't take that loving, gracious rebuke because they're entrenched in their own unbelief and pride. And the measure of their unbelief and pride is given in their anger against Jesus for actually saying such a thing. 
and they lash out at him wanting to kill him. The only place in which the word rebuke is found in Paul, it's only two times outside the Gospels, is in the text we read this morning. Preach the good news. Correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and careful instruction because we're prone to want itching ears and to wander away into ridiculous myths that we don't need a Savior with all authority and that we are somehow better than we think we are. We're sometimes better, yeah. We think we're good. That's what I'm trying to say. And really, when you look at it, those are more effective instruments of the devil than even demon possession and sickness. And they get really entrenched. And our sin patterns, our thought process get really entrenched. And we think we're not utterly helpless and need a savior like this. And Jesus shows up and stands over us and says, I rebuke you graciously. You need none other than me. And so we might be at like a Calvin's crossroads or a Capernaum Nazareth crossroads. Are we going to come under Jesus' authority or are we going to reject it? And that might be not so much in your justification, but in your sanctification. Maybe you've embraced Jesus, but now you've kind of, kind of taken a few steps back. And you've got some pockets in your life that you like the way they are. And it's impeding you from being full on for Christ. And really submitting to his authority, really loving the gospel. Maybe you're looking at your own sin patterns and saying, well, I want an instantaneous cure like the man or like the woman. Why didn't he just deal with it? Like these desires I have, they're so, I struggle with them all the time. Do other people, you know? But we see in the word that ordinarily God in Christ exerts a process in our lives. For some reason, that gives him more glory and it's, and it's better for us to learn his faithful gracious word in an ongoing manner as we believe and rest upon the gospel. That's the model of Christian growth. And it's no less powerful than what Jesus did when he cast out the demon and he healed the lady of her fever. And he stands over you and says, I'm here for you right there with all of that. Just trust in me. Heed my rebuke and hear my gracious word. And then maybe we can also be like Peter's mother-in-law. We rise up, rise up with all the strength, the growing strength of new vigor for Christ and love for him. And we serve him and we serve others more and more. And that's that vision of the gospel. He has total authority, a complete savior. What is the hallmark of holiness? Our own sense of brokenness, but admiring thoughts of our redeemer. May it be so. Amen.